Welcome to this episode of Temporary Fandoms, part of the Infrequency family of music-themed podcasts that you can find at infrequency.co.uk, along with several other episodes covering a growing number of artists. If you're not doing so already, we strongly recommend listening on Mixcloud, where for $2.99 a month, you get to hear the show as it was intended, with music. We listen to entire discographies in order to grasp for a definitive understanding of an artist's work. How did they start? Who were their influences? Why the hell do they sound like that? We've been doing it for quite a long time now, and we've made it into a podcast so that more people could join our listening journey. But you knew that. Let me hand you over to Ewan, who is probably about to say exactly the same thing before we launch headlong into the complete discography of reluctant goths, Sushi and the Banshees. Hello there, welcome to Temporary Fandoms. Um, this should, in theory, be the March edition, unless things go awry. Um, I'm Ewan. I'm Nick. And we've got, we've got a really good one today. I mean, they're all really good, but hopefully this is a really, really good one. Um, and it's a two-parter. And so this is the first one. There's lots to listen to. The best way to listen and also to support us and the artists we feature is via Mixcloud, which you'll find at mixcloud.com slash tempfans, or come over to infrequency.co.uk and you can find our monthly selection of podcasts that get released sort of kind of like an audio an audio music magazine. You know, take your time, come back a month later. Um, all right, so you've met me, you've met Nick. Also joining us today um, are, well, both sides of the amazing Punk Girl Diaries at punkgirldiaries.com. Uh, we have Lena Cortina and Vim Renault. Lena, hello. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having us along. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. And we also have Vim. Hey, Vim. Hi. Pleased to be here. Awesome. Um, like I said, if you're listening, um, you really need to check out punkgirldiaries.com and not only check out their blog, but the rather amazing uh, zine, you know, an actual physical thing that wow. people make. I know, right? I know. And they really are covering sort of a lot of the stories about punk that maybe sort of got ignored along the way, but also just things to be, that need to be shouted from the rooftops again. But we will no doubt get back to that as we progress. And finally, rejoining us... I think the last time you were on was Bjork. Is that correct, Jeffrey? Yeah. Jeffrey McDonald? Yeah, early, Bjork's early post-sugar cubes period. Oh yeah, you were you were the first one, and then we then we got rid of you for uh, for other guests. Right. Um, welcome back. Thanks. <laughs> um, and who 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 are we going to be looking at in these two episodes, Jeffrey? Today we're going to go through the discography of Susie and the Banshees, uh, and today we'll talk about the first six albums from The Scream through Hyena. Fantastic. Thank you very much. We might take the usual detour into some other things as we go, but we'll try and keep things on track. Um, the next thing you're going to hear will be, well, one of us talking you through the first two albums and if you're on Mixcloud, hopefully some tunes as well. And we'll all be back to talk about that in a bit. Susie and the Panties are a band that is difficult to classify, adjacent to punk and post-punk, skirting the edges of goth. Even in their later years, when they embrace pop, they sound like no other pop act. Part of the reason that the band can be so difficult to define is because the members of the band always made a concerted effort not to allow anyone to box them in. When frontwoman Susie Sue gained media attention in the late 70s, young girls at the time, such as Garbage's Shirley Manson, described being attracted to her fierceness. 
Compared to women on popular television shows at the time, such as Charlie's Angels, Sue was a feral force that disturbed people. Mark Patris, in his Susie and the Banshees authorized biography, which was an essential resource while I was preparing for this podcast, puts Susie in the context of the 70s when he claims, at last, Farrah Fawcett's flickbacks had met their nemesis. The story of the band is more complicated than I have time to tell, but here is a truncated version of how the band came to be. Susan Ballion grew up in the Chislehurst suburb southeast of London. Her mother was an English-French bilingual secretary, and her father was a Belgian bacteriologist whose work included milking snakes for venom. Her father's alcoholism, along with her own persistent health problems, were among reasons that Susan isolated as a child. As she got older, after completing secondary school, she would enjoy traveling to London to hang out on Kings Road and Kensington High Street. She liked renting costume clothes so she could look fabulous at the gay and lesbian clubs she frequented. Her neighbors would scowl and jeer at her as she walked by to the train station, and she enjoyed being the freak in a middle-class suburb. Stephen Bailey was born in London, and his family moved to the town of Bromley when he was 10 years old. He had a fairly normal childhood, and was a good student until his teenage years when he discovered what he referred to as the usual, girls, drugs, and music. He fell in with a group of acid heads and anarchists, including a young William Broad, who would eventually be known as Billy Idol. Susan and Stephen met at a Roxy Music concert in 1975 and became fast friends. A few months after they met, Stephen caught an early Sex Pistols show where an enraged Johnny Rotten was throwing folding chairs at a passive audience, and at that moment, Stephen knew he had found the inspiration that he had been looking for. He and Susan Sue became avid Sex Pistols fan and part of a scene of outsiders and weirdos who would follow the band. The two adopted their pseudonyms around this time, with Susan becoming Susie Sue, naming herself after the Native American tribe, and Stephen Bailey becoming Stephen Severin, named after a line from a Velvet Underground song. When a band dropped out of Malcolm McLaren's 100 Club Punk Festival, Susie volunteered to fill in the vacant spot, even though she and Severin didn't have a band and had no idea how to play. They were embracing the new punk ethos that anyone can do this. They recruited future Ant Marco Pironi on guitar and future Pistol Sid Vicious on the drums and pounded their way through a 20-minute noise version of the Lord's Prayer as Susie and the Banshees. Soon after the festival, Susie and Stephen were in tow for the Sex Pistols' infamous appearance on The Grundy Show. Sue and Severin enjoyed the wild feeling of their first performance so much that they decided to make the Banshees a permanent band. They wanted to be original and break free of the safety pin through the cheek cartoon the punk was quickly becoming. The first iteration of the band as we know it had Susie on the vocals, Severin on bass, with Kenny Morris on drums and John McKay on guitar. Kenny's main drumming inspiration was Maureen Tucker from the Velvet Underground, and John was game when Susie told him that she wanted a guitar to sound like stabbing violins rather than fast pub rock. The band spent months gigging in small clubs in the suburbs, tightening their playing and honing their songwriting. They gained larger prominence after opening for Johnny Thunders and recording two Peel sessions. They were featured in several articles and started to gain a large live following, but could not get a record deal. One night in early 1978, a frustrated roadie for the band allegedly defaced several record company buildings around London with the slogan, Sign the Banshees, do it now! When an A&R person at Polydor heard Hong Kong Garden on their second Peel show appearance, he convinced his superiors to sign the band. Hong Kong Garden, which was Susie's love letter to her childhood Chinese takeaway, as well as condemnation of the abuse the workers there received, was released as a single. Some of the commentary in the song may not have aged very well, but it's a catchy tune. Catchy enough that it reached number 7 in the UK charts and gave the band enough clout to record their first full album, The Scream. The Scream was released in November of 1978 and is the band at their most raw. The album was named after a moment in the final scene of the Burt Lancaster film The Swimmer. If you've not seen the film and have a stomach for art pictures, I highly recommend it, and it's a film best seen going in knowing nothing about it. 
The album is the sound of people trying to express something with tools that they don't exactly know how to use, and that tension and frustration is what makes it great. After the intro of Pure, Jigsaw feeling with John's angular, sharp guitar, and Sue's fierce vocal attack, it's an immediate assault on the listener. Remember, this predates Sonic Youth and a lot of other noise rock bands by quite a bit. There are so many great tracks on this album, Nicotine Stain with its raw aggression and self-loathing. Suburban Relapse embodies the tension and frustration of modern living. The Scream was fairly well received when it was released, and the band went on an extended UK tour with the Human League opening for them. Kenny thought the band should use an elaborate light show like their openers, but Sue and Severin wanted to keep things as stark as possible and make the show only about experiencing the music. Around this time, cracks started to form in the relationship between the band members. Sue and Severin were on a mission, and from their perspective, John and Kenny were not interested in keeping up the pace. From John and Kenny's perspectives, they were never included in the decisions and always outvoted by Susie, Stephen, and the manager. In spite of band turmoil, less than a year after the release of The Scream, the band entered the studio to record their follow-up, Join Hands. Many songs on the album were inspired by bombings in London happening at the time, as well as the current war in Iran. They wanted the album to have a more claustrophobic and helpless feeling compared to the first album, and dare I say they accomplished it. Some favorite songs on the album for me are Icon, with McKay's atmospheric guitar work and Susie channeling a bit of Nico, as well as the claustrophobic and creepy Premature Burial. The band also recorded their version of The Lord's Prayer as a 14-minute track to close the album. Stephen and Kenny have said that they feel the track doesn't quite capture the spontaneity of when they played it live, and it does make me wish that I could have seen the band live around this time. Overall, I think this is a tighter and more confident album compared to the first one, yet my favorite song from this period is their single, Love in a Void. Early into the tour for Join Hands, the cracks in the band became chasms. During a fan meet and greet, Susie roughly shoved John to the ground when he slagged their new album while it was playing over the speaker system. Without a word, John and Kenny walked away and never came back. In retrospect, Susie and Severin both wished that they had treated John and Kenny a little better, while at the same time they wished that John and Ken would have argued with them or had a fight now and then rather than quietly simmer and sulk. Sue and Stephen came from the confrontational punk world, while Kenny and John were sensitive pot-smoking art school kids. All parties were hurt deeply by the disillusion of the band. That night, the lead singer-guitar player for the opening band, The Cure, helped Sue and Severin struggle their way through a version of the Lord's Prayer. After losing half the band, Susie and Stephen were determined to soldier on, and they would. Hello there, welcome back. Um, you've been listening to, well, somebody talk through through the first couple of Susie and the Banshees albums, as well as hopefully listening to some music on our Mixed Cloud. Um, okay, um, Jeffrey, I'm going to come straight to you um, and let's get some sort of scene setting context. Um, what is <laughs> what is Susie and the Banshees' origin story? How did they come about? I mean, obviously there was a, the whole punk scene at the time, but different punk bands had different ways in right right and it really came out of that where uh susan bellion as her birth name and stephen bailey were both uh met each other at a roxy music concert and they became really quick friends and um stephen became really obsessed with the sex pistols after he saw them play a show where johnny rotten got pissed at the audience and started throwing chairs at them and he just realized that this is something new that i want to be a part of and they both became obsessive Sex Pistols fans, following them, going to every show. Part of what was dubbed the Bromley Contingent, and um, a name that they said they hated, but they also embraced at the same time. And they really just came out of that scene of outsiders and freaks who just 
fell in love with this new thing that was happening that was exciting in London at the time. And the first show, Suits and the Banties, came about because, um, oh my God, why am I forgetting his name right now? <laughs> the Sex Pistols, Sven Gali, Malcolm, Malcolm, Malcolm McLaren, yes. Malcolm McLaren was having uh, the 100 Club Punk Festival and a band dropped out and Susie said, well, Stephen, you and I should play. And they didn't have a band or know how to play instruments. And they just decided they wanted to be the true spirit where everyone said that punk was for everybody. Anyone can form a band. It was supposed to be the great equalizer. They said, well, we've never touched an instrument in our life. Let's get on stage and play this show. And so they recruited Sid Vicious as the drummer and uh, Marco Pironi for the guitar, who later was in Adam and the Ants. And they sort of thrashed their way through a 20-minute version of the Lord's Prayer because it was the only song Susie says she knew the lyrics to. and. Soon, at- okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, 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 I was, I was going to. So, the first thing they did on stage was this very long version of the Lord's Prayer, which they do cover again on a on a later album, mm-hmm. um, and that actually set them up for a career that they weren't just booed off stage and, and disappeared. Was this because, as you said, punk was this great equalizer, and everybody could suddenly do things? You know, the nineteen seventies, the glam rock was sort of disappeared disappearing the old um granddads of rock when I was, and i'm going to say granddads of rock were getting sort of pushed to the side and were no longer no longer cool again um, i'm going to go i'm going to randomly pick in terms of on my screen i'm going to lena because you're the one next to me um do you think there was this great equalizer uh, or door opening with this scene of punk that allowed people from all walks of life um, or, or, or tastes um, male men and women to have this equal footing? Or was it just another genre coming in and just something happened later on? I think it was really important. And I think everybody understood somehow that it was a, a ripping up of the rule book. You know, you didn't have to be a virtuoso to to play in a punk band. You didn't even have to have an expensive guitar. You could have a borrowed guitar. You could know three chords. It it just didn't matter. Um, but I think you know what what Susie and Steve Severin did have. Maybe they didn't have all the kind of you know the musical knowledge, but what they had is a really great background in seeing bands, knowing bands. They were they were into you know Bolan and Roxy and Bowie. They were into the art end of what we can loosely call glam rock, I suppose. So they had a really good grounding in kind of knowing the sort of thing they wanted to do. <laughs> and I think also, um, yeah, I, 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 sorry. I was also going to say it was that there was a scene. So it wasn't just them standing up in front of strangers. It was a whole collective of people all determined to make something new and it didn't matter whether they sang the Lord's Prayer or it sounded dreadful. Everybody was in support of a revolution in music and it doesn't matter what it sounded like. The time was just right for it to happen then. Um, interesting that you mentioned the word scene. Something that comes up time and time again on, on, on our pods is is occasionally there is a scene and a proper scene, um, whether or not it's punk or whether it's, I don't know, uh, Elephant Six over in Athens or whether or not it's Manchester. Of And what tends to define these scenes are people joining each other's bands and helping each other out and, and, oh, I'll get on drums for this one or I'll be on guitar for this one. And so was there this early support? Because looking back, it just seems like this anarchic thing. 
was there a lot of people supporting each other like musically and giving them i know songwriting tips or help or was it just this i don't know group of people just getting together people were desperate for something new i think you know like you you called them granddads the bands had become so bloated so far away from everyone and and they were all sort of they were too old. They were boring. They weren't talking about things. I mean, what was the big chart hits, you know, in, in sort of 76, 77? What did we have? You know, kind of Rod Stewart and mm-hmm. like, you know, where was the relevance? It was just like some rich old guy, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was so boring. And but music was exciting. We knew music was exciting. We knew we wanted to, you know, do stuff. And they, you know, we, um... we were kids, but it, it was it, it it was a it was a scene that went beyond what Vim just said, which was completely right. In that you know that there was the, the punk fest at the Hundred Club, but people were absolutely desperate for something new. And even the things they loved, they were still being critical of. Or Susie said at that point she thought Bowie started dressing like a golfer, and they wanted to he do did. something <laughs> different than that. <laughs> he was over by then. Right. <laughs> One thing we learned when we did the Bowie episode is Bowie was never over when we thought he was over. Um, (laughs) um, Were there, okay, so so there was this explosion. There was all these new bands and they're all coming up and uh, they didn't necessarily need to have talent, classical talent per se. They just needed this drive, this enthusiasm. Um, Were there any other, and I I hate the word female-fronted, but it seems to be relevant at the time. Were there, who were the other peers I, to make it not just another boys club, you know, because obviously you look back, there's the Sex Pistols, there's the Clash, and there was, it, that could just be a continuation of male-fronted rock, right? Who, who else was there coming through? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure about the timeline, but I know you have the slits around this time and um, um, X-ray specs, but I'm not sure. They were probably later, a little bit later, but. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to one of the punk, one of the punk girl diarists. Yes, that's very true. Uh, <laughs> Better source than me. <laughs> I mean, um, at, at, yeah. the, at the Hundred Club Punk Fest, which is, I think, what we're talking about, there was a, there was a band called the Stinky Toys, uh, who were French, um, and they were female fronted. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeffrey was right. Just after that, you were, you know, there was the slits, but Tessa had come from the Contortions. I mean, there were all sorts of things that were all melding and merging and people were swapping bands but you know i think probably the you know the important not the important ones the the most visible ones probably were the slits the banshees x-ray specs polystyrene i think also also you need to bear in mind there's a bit of overlapping so some of these things don't happen exactly at the same time um a lot of the girls who were involved in this scene were very very young indeed i mean we spoke to michelle brigandage who sort of skipped school to come to the punk fest. And what we've tended to find is that um, girls that saw this, they didn't actually form bands until a little little bit later, but it was informed by Susie and those very early days. Um, Before we get on to talking about the first album proper, um, was there, I even had to ask, but was it a a, a, a movement that was, leaning towards either working class or middle class, because there are certain movements, there are certain genres that come out of either a working class northern town or a bunch of kids at art college. Was this one that encompassed whomever wanted to join? 
I don't think it was one single scene. I think around the country, particularly as it spread, there were little pockets, some of which were working class in a way that not many other music scenes are, and some were more middle class art school, um, and some were a mix. And, and I think good things come when you get people from different backgrounds mixing. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, okay, let's get on to the first album proper, which was The Scream in 1978. Um, the thing that come, jumps out of this album most for me is sometimes you get an album and you're listening to it and you think, oh my God, you sounded like you were so much better live and it just isn't coming across. Whether it's the confines of a studio, whether it's the producer, whether it's just bad mixing, I don't know. There's something about this that feels like they they must have been amazing live, but it it's not jumping out at me in that way. I'm not saying that I don't enjoy this. It. It's an amazing album, but it feels constrained maybe by technology, maybe by they just didn't know what they were doing in a studio. I mean, Jeffrey, was there anything, what was happening when they moved into the studio here? I mean, they they had been trying to get a record deal for a, a long time, and they had been uh, eventually. Uh, Kenny Morris and John McKay joined the band. Kenny on the drums and John on guitar, and they were playing club, uh, just small clubs throughout the suburbs, and really honing their skills. And had been on the John Peel show a couple times, but still could not get a record deal until one of their roadies apparently spray painted signed the Banshees Do It Now all over record companies across London, and um, John uh, when one of the guys at Polydor heard their single for Hong Kong Garden from John Peel show. He finally was convinced to sign them. And when they went into the studio, they really had these songs honed and ready to go from playing them out so much. And I, there's a great quote from Severin that I have where he says, when I listen to Scream, I hear a band physically struggling to play the songs that came from our imagination. And the tension is one of the great strengths of the record. And that is really how I hear it. I hear that tension when I listen to it and this just this raw, pure, unmolded clay trying to get out these sounds, this raw, energetic, amazing sound that they get on that record. You know, also, I think listening to, listening to it now, it's really, really hard to get a sense of how it must have sounded at the time because I, th I, think, I think it's one of those albums that actually sounds quite different listening to it sort of retrospectively to how it must have seemed at the time. I think it was like nothing else as far as I can tell. And really, really stood out among all the kind of new sort of punk bands doing their first albums around that time. Yeah, I mean, even musically, I mean, a lot of the other the traditionally big punk bands are very riff heavy. Mm -hmm. They're very oh, this is the next rock. You know, um, there's some there's some guitar, there's some bass. Yes, there's the vocals might be different. Yes, there's more of a shock element. To some of the bands but this does sound different i think like you said nick it's really hard to listen to it retrospectively if you're coming to it for the first time because the context is slightly missing mm -hmm. it's i mean it's a it's a great album i mean i can't even i i only heard it for the first time three months ago uh so i don't have that i haven't grown up with with that um i'm gonna go to vim because you're at the bottom of my screen that's my arbitrary. <laughs> um, when did you, I mean, was this an album you got into when you, you were a kid or is this something you came back to later? And, and how, what was it like the first time you heard it? I think it's really hard to explain some of this stuff because 
um, yes, I was a punk and I was a girl. And the way that I listened to music and I consume music, I think was very different to how a lot of guys uh, did. For example, I really only bought singles. Um, and it seemed, I think it was a kind of punk thing that albums were linked with kind of the, this old Eric Clapton style thing. So I was very much a singles um, person. And I was just, listening to everything everywhere. I didn't get obsessed with one particular thing. Um, it was just everything, a great ephemera of everything. Um, so at the time, I didn't buy the Scream. I listened to it around my friend's house because that was <laughs> that was the cheap way. Um, and, yeah, it, it was okay, but I was a singles girl. Well, and what were the singles? So what were the Hong ones? Hong Kong Garden, which I looked on Spotify. Oh. Hong Kong Garden has got 23 million uh, streams and there's nothing else that, that people listen to over a million apart from Jigsaw. Um, Hong Kong Garden, <laughs> there are a couple of things I think need to be – It's hard. I, I, don't, I don't like always looking at things retrospectively through different goggles. And I know, and I have read that the purpose lyrically isn't necessarily how it sounds, but there's some elements of Hong Kong Garden that don't seem to sound of aged particularly well. Mm-hmm. Um, also, also, this is probably a, a good time to get it out of the way. Um, yes, image-wise, there was a whole punk shock thing. Um, can anybody explain the swastikas to me? Because it's, I, I don't, I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, Lena, I, I, I don't know why I'm going to you with a swastika conversation, but <laughs> yeah, go to Lena. <laughs> I don't know. I think she. I think that that hit herself a few times, but I don't think that the the swastikas had um, had the, you know the, the same meaning. It was it was really just about upsetting grown ups. You know, everything was about upsetting grown ups, and I think that was sort of something that was guaranteed to do so. And I don't think it was really, you know, about saying, oh, yes, we're, we're a bunch of neo-Nazis and yeah. uh, we're going to proclaim that. It was just about finding symbols about, um, you know, just upsetting people. It was, it was just about upsetting the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, when I was, <laughs> when I wasn't really doing the research, when I was just doing the Wikipedia look the other week, um, and this is mainly for regular listeners, there was a, a narrative klaxon that jumped in. And I'm going to read out the line. Um, there, in, in one of the original reviews, uh, the band sounds like some unique hybrid of the Velvet Underground mated with much of the ingenuity of, Nick, Tago Mago era can. Excellent. Tago Mago being the album uh, that is my nemesis <laughs> on this entire podcast. The album I really don't get and um, we'll get, caused we'll some there. issues for me. So it, keep, it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. Um, what, what, what for anybody here musically are the standouts on this album? And anybody can jump in anytime. I don't know. I yeah. think Carcass is amazing. <laughs> It's it's the catchiest love song about meat and missing limbs ever made. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Don't get into the lyrics too much, but if, you, if you're going to sit and listen to something, I, I think you know, Carcass is definitely a standout to me. I really do love Carcass. Um, just the the opening track, Jigsaw Failing, with those angular sharp guitars, where Susie told John she wanted him to play the guitar to sound like the violins in Psycho. Where just again, you're talking about. I mean, I love the Clash and the Damned, but 
they were making rock music, basically fast rock music. And there was nothing that sounded like that at the time, really, as far as I know. And for me, probably my standout track on the album is Suburban Relapse, where I just really like how the music embodies the tension and frustration of the lyrics and also the chaos with that crazy, disgusting saxophone that comes in. At the, and I just really love that one. And um, I think for me, the only weakness of the album is I, I think Severin hasn't come into his own yet and he doesn't really stand out. The bass is pretty much just either doubling the guitar or the drums for most of the album. Only, only a couple of times does he really pop out. And I think he really comes into his own on later albums. Um, I think also as an album, it's, it's interesting to look at this uh, through their career. They have some interesting cover versions and Helter Skelter being this one, I mean, we recently on one of the sister pods, I talked to uh, author J.R. Moores, who wrote uh, Electric Wizard's Tapestry of Heavy Music, 1968 to present day. And he argues that Helter Skelter by the Beatles is the beginning of modern heavy music. And so I'd been listening to that quite constantly when I, when I started listening to this album. And it's a really good version. I also really like Nicotine Stain as well. Um, it just, I, I like really short songs. It's like under three minutes. I really like a short song. <laughs> I, I'd, like put, I'd like to put something in for Mirage um, because I'm a singer and a songwriter and I, I think a lot about um, vocal lines. And I think the way that she harmonizes with herself on that is very unusual. And it's also very typical of early punk. And I had to think about it in musical terms. Normally in the, the sort of girl groups, they sing uh, thirds. So if you're if you're singing a C, then the harmonizer will sing an E. Um, whereas on this one, and, and I think on quite a lot of things in, when she harmonizes with herself on early songs, um, she's doing fifths, which creates a different kind of slightly spooky um, effect. And I think you don't notice it until you start thinking about it. And yes, these aren't the harmonies that you traditionally get in music. And I think it comes from being inexperienced, probably having a natural feel for music, but not knowing what the conventional harmonizing is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that's an interesting thing. I mean, there are probably some of the, the greatest not classic, classically trained um, artists are those ones with a natural affinity for this sounds good, but nobody's told me I can't do it. <laughs> so I'm just, so I'm just going to do it. Um, okay. So we're going to move on unless anybody's got anything else they want to say about the scream. Um, and we're going to move on what a, a year. Oh, sorry. Lena, go on. I was just going to say, you know, it, 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 listening to it again, you've got to remember that these were people who weren't like hugely good musicians doing their first album with people who, you know, engineers who were used to recording kind of rock bands. And so I think that there would have been some friction there, definitely, because I don't think the Banshees would have been quite up to standing up to engineers going, no, I don't care what you think. I want to record it like this. And likewise, the engineers would have been like, oh, you're doing what? You know, you can just kind of imagine that. So I think, you know, you've got to kind of listen to it, not at the time, but certainly now. As, as a kind of, you know, fairly naive band, but they were so ambitious. And I think that's what really comes out is that there's a huge ambition on that. This isn't for people just going into a studio and, and playing through a few songs. There's a massive amount of ambition on it. And I think what Bim just said about um, even, you know, down to Susie's vocal harmonies, amazing. 
I think also it's worth mentioning in the context of the first album is I was rereading some of the comments in the Facebook group from when we listened to this uh, album. And there's quite a sort of recurring thing, people saying what was amazing was how unique her voice seemed uh, right from the beginning, like how strong and confident her vocal style was, given that there didn't really seem to be any precursor to that. But then somebody did point out um, that the uh, that uh, one of the precursors could be uh, Grace Slick era Jefferson Airplane and tracks like White Rabbits. Um, the, I'm just thinking in terms of the vocal style uh, as a precursor to what she was doing and may have been an influence. Um, yeah, she was kind of inventing her own her, her own way of um, performing melodies, her own yeah, melodies. Yeah. I mean, you know, just really, really ambitious. All right. Well, how do you follow a, a, a groundbreaking, ambitious debut? Um, well, you spend a year and you come back with a slightly World War One themed uh, follow up um, with the Lord's Prayer, um, Jeffrey. Um, in terms of like the next album was what one year later? Yeah, one year later in 1979. And to me, this album has a lot more claustrophobic, intense feeling than the first album, and that's what they said they were going for. Um, Susie said. For this one, they were composing songs that were soundtracks to the films of psychosis and obsession in their heads. And she said so many bands were putting out musical versions of blockbuster movies with a beginning, middle, and a happy ending. And the films she liked wasn't like that, weren't like that. And so Susie wanted to make David Lynch movies and for the equivalent for her songs, basically. And I think it really comes across on this album. They seem a lot more confident on this one to me. Um and it just it takes a lot from the first album, and it just feels a little more honed and and brought together from my perspective. Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a chosen. It sounds like I'm being really pretentious here. There's a chosen darkness to the sound um, that they've deliberately honed something, and they're going for something particular. Um, Vim, what was the single? <laughs> you're going to be my sing. You're going to be my go-to singles person. What was the single? I don't even know. This is really an album that I didn't explore at the time. I think I was very, very young and very impressionable, and I had some quite strong-minded friends who told me what I should like and what I should not like. Uh oh, it's the gatekeepers. Exactly, and and they were one minute someone would be in, and the next minute it was oh no, no, that's rubbish, um, and or it, they've just gone a bit pompous. And I think it was also to do with that sort of age difference because when, as a sort of 14-year-old, you look at women and there are some women who are girls and there are some women who are women. And I think Susie sort of crossed over from being kind of a girl to being, oh, yes, she's one of these older women like Helen Reddy or something. So, yeah, it it, it was just very kind of dark and weird and I just didn't get that. I think I was perhaps too young at the time. There's definitely there's definitely that sort of there's the church bells and there's what was it Poppy Day in there as well and obviously the Lord's Prayer. We've talked a lot about uh, punk, but when I hear Poppy Day, I think that sounds like the template for goth. And we got to talk about them as a goth band as well as being a punk band, really, haven't we? Yeah. And maybe it's too I soon. Mean, they, they get yeah. gothier. Well, I mean, they, they might. Bands will say. And we talked. To, I talked about this on, on a different pod. A lot of bands don't want to think that they're part of a genre because what they do is unique and different. But as people, we like to put them in something we can understand, and they are 
veering into the goth side. There's an album cover I want to address later, but not quite yet. Um, are we wrong to try and pigeonhole them a bit? Is that just for laziness? Like, because they are more on the goth, operatic, dark, horror, thriller side of of music rather well, than just I mean, churning pigeon, out riffs. Pigeonholing, by definition, is, is a pejorative way of putting it, but genre is just a thing that we... That, that ends up being invented when we need to talk about music and try and describe things that bits of music have in common. And of course the bands always reject it, but it's a useful thing from the point of view of just trying to describe a collection of sounds. And for me, a lot of what Sushi and the Banshees does is pretty much the template for goth. Um, as I understand it, as the 80s thing, there was, there was sort of later iterations of goth that make no sense to me at all because I've got this fixed idea of what goth is from the eighties. And then this later music came along that people described as goth and that's not goth, but you know, whatever. Um, Lena, how did this album, and was this an album uh, like them that you came back to later or was this one you, you, you experienced sort of as part of the chronology? I think, yeah, I experienced it when it came out. Like Vim, I had, you know, the peer pressure friends, but they were very much pro-Banshees. So uh, I, I, I got to hear that. But I think when, when it came out, you know, what they took as their sort of theme, the overarching theme is World War One, which seemed like a really odd thing to do. Because World War One was something we were kind of doing at school in terms of, you know, the poetry. And it's like, School's boring, and everything they do at school is so boring. And the new Susie and the Banshees album is based on exactly what's in front of me. It just seems like a really odd choice. But I think you know what the Banshee said at the time was it, it was kind of they, there were all the reports of like there was the revolution in Iran, and so they got into that kind of you know that war thing and you know resistance and curfews and all that kind of stuff. So I think that they were kind of taking a contemporary theme, but they were, they were harking it back. Okay, um, thank you. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a horrible shock to find that they were doing something we were doing at school. <laughs> but do you think it's a concept album, Lena? Did you see it as a concept album? Because there was a real prejudice against concept albums at the time. Yeah, a concept album more, you know, themed. <laughs> and uh, Playground Twist was actually the, the single that came off that album and I, you know kind of, a, kind of a weird single again I'm not a huge fan actually of Join Hands mm -hmm. um, now looking back at it I, if somebody was going to ask me which Banshee's album should I start with I probably wouldn't be recommending it <laughs> I mean maybe 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 it is the classic difficult second album I mean Slight narrative collection again. The previous episode of Temporary Fandoms, we looked at LCD Sound System and um, James Murphy of LCD Sound System. That this was one of the first albums he ever bought. Um, this and Grotesque After the Ground by the Fall were two of the first few albums he ever bought. So there's obviously an influence. But then again, James Murphy does like to try and be cool, and maybe picking the obscure uh, Banshees album might be his way of doing that. Okay. We're probably moving into a good point where we can take a, a, a slight detour and go into the the third and fourth albums. Well, before we leave um, this one, I, I do want to say that the non-album single for this one is probably one of my top five favorite Banshee tracks. And um, if you suffer through the Lord's Prayer, 
and make it to the end on the reissue of the album, uh, then you have Love and Avoid. And that song is just, uh, it's the non-album track that is probably my favorite song associated with when this album was released. I, I just want to, I just want to leave the, this, this particular part of the thing on a bit of a cliffhanger because, <gasps> uh, <gasps> because as Join Hands was released and they were about to go on tour, there was some terrible incident and Kenny Morris and uh, the, the guitarist, John, he, they, they left, they left mm -hmm. Severin and Susie all alone at the beginning of something called Join Hands where they completely <laughs> split up. And it was just, it was, it was like, what's going to happen now? Well, that is a perfect time. Um, who is going to join them on tour? Um, particularly with a giant drumming space gap in the Banshees repertoire. Who could that be? Um, so you, we're, you're now going to listen and hopefully listen to some music and we'll talk you through some of the albums and we will be back to talk about them in a bit. After John and Kenny left the band, the Curious Robert Smith agreed to fill in for the remainder of the tour, but the band needed a drummer. Enter Budgie. Peter Clark grew up in St. Helens, Lancashire. He started drumming in his early teenage years, gigging with other kids around town. His interest in playing music waned while he attended art college in Liverpool, but the flame was rekindled after seeing The Clash and the Ramones play live and feeling the aggressive pulses of Topper's and Tommy's drumming. One day, someone brought a small budgerigar to Peter's flat and was tormenting it. Peter went to the bird's rescue, so his friends Peter Rutherford and Holly Johnson, later Frankie Goes to Hollywood, started calling him Budgie, and the name stuck. Budgie quit college and played in bands around Liverpool such as the Spitfire Boys and Big in Japan. Later, he moved to London and did session work in several bands, including playing drums on the first Slits album. Through his Slits connections, Paul Cook re recommended him to the Banshees. In spite of differences in personality, something felt right about Budgie. They never actually told him he was in the band, he just sort of fit. The Banshees were able to finish the tour with Robert and Budgie learning the songs on the road, sometimes with the audience helping them out when they got lost. Robert said that playing with the Banshees and feeling the power of their music completely changed his attitude towards what he wanted to do with The Cure. Unfortunately, Susie got terribly ill and was hospitalized after the tour. She said, I'm sure it was all the gobbing from the audience that contributed to that. Spitting had become part of the punk myth, but if I saw anyone doing it, I'd kick the shit out of them. Good for her. Yet another reason I admire Susie. From her hospital bed, Sue learned to play guitar and started writing songs for the next album. Budgie became a permanent member of the band, and they recruited magazine's John McGeoch to temporarily join on guitar. The band felt like a happy and creative place again, and Sue liked that she could tell John, I want this to sound like a horse falling off a cliff, and he would know exactly what she meant. Susie and Steven were on a creative high and threw the songs together for the new album incredibly fast. They called the album Kaleidoscope because they wanted to start letting more varied aspects of their tastes influence the songwriting. The album came together so well that McGeoch was convinced to join the band as a full-time member. Kaleidoscope sounds like a band with new life breathed into it. Budgie and Severin complement each other well as a rhythm section. John is playing from another dimension with wonderfully unhinged guitar playing. Susie sings with a smoldering tension. I like the singles such as Happy House and Christine, but there really isn't a weak track on here for me. Tenet has a great anticipatory tension. Red Light is deliciously sleazy with its dirty synth line. Hybrid has a Joy Division starkness, but Budgie has so much more swing than Stephen Morris. On Paradise Place, Sue sounds like no one else. 
Between this album and the next one, the band released the Israel single coupled with the B-side Drop Dead. At this time, Susie started to wear a Star David shirt on stage and would continue to through the next two tours as an atonement for the aggressively provocative swastikas that she used to wear. Unfortunately, youthful mistakes done in the name of offensive shock value never tend to age very well, and no matter how much she has apologized, Sue has never really lived down that early image. After the Kaleidoscope tour, Susie and Severin went immediately back into writing mode. They treated the band like a full-time job writing all day at a local music publishing house and sharing ideas with each other and the rest of the band later. Sue and Severin were the main songwriters, but Budgie and McGeoch were always included in the creative process when fleshing out the songs. The band were inspired by an African idol they saw at the Hornemann Museum, which graces the album cover, as well as the idea of juju, which is a West African word for luck, good or bad, associated with charms. Severin has said one of the biggest influences on them at the time were the cramps, not musically, but image-wise. Songs on the album such as Arabian Nights, Night Shift, and Voodoo Dolly were inspired by The Doors and Led Zeppelin, but only as the Banshees could interpret them. What I think is fascinating is that Susie and Severn love rock music, they just don't want to make rock music. They're inspired by it and pull inspiration from it, but filtered through the Banshees' minds, what comes out sounds like nothing else. For myself, Juju might be my favorite album by the band. Opening with Spellbound and Budgie's incredibly frantic drumming, the unrelenting madness of Halloween, the swirling guitar riff on Monitor, the fiery sin of my heart, all capping things off with the intense and wild voodoo dolly. It's all great. Around this time, the press started to call the band Goth, a label they always resented. The whole goth thing appalls me, said Susie. It was, and still is, a terrible pantomime. The idea that I'm the queen of goth, please. One of the most distressing things I've ever experienced is seeing girls coming to the show dressed as me. Hopefully they've grown out of that by now. I love our fans, but we never wanted an army of sycophants. On a personal note, I'm willing to concede that the band may not want to identify as goth, even though they name themselves after a Vincent Price movie, but they are certainly a band that goths listen to. Hello there, welcome back. Um, previously on Temporary Fandoms, um, Susie and the Banshees were about to head off on tour and lost two pivotal members. Um, but what happened next? Well, before we get into detail, Lena, you gave us this, <laughs> this uh, cliffhanger. You can, you can deliver us from it. <gasps> who, who, who saved them? Who joined? What happened? Well, like you said, like you were absolutely right, there was a massive drum hole in the Banshees. So, um, I do believe their manager got in touch with a gentleman called Budgie, um, who had been drumming with the Slits and all sorts of other people. Uh, so we don't know how that was going to work. And then uh, the, the Banshees, the Join Hands tour, they were going to be supported, or they were supported, by a band called The Cure, who had a very good and very capable guitarist who uh, stepped in for that tour, um, but, the, but didn't stay as a permanent member. Uh, but yeah, they had they had Robert Smith come in for the tour, but then we're about to talk about Kaleidoscope, uh, I do believe, which is the third album. Um, and then they borrowed another guitarist, Mr. John McGeoch from Magazine, uh, who joined the Banshees for Kaleidoscope. So we're looking at Susie Sue, Steve Severn on bass, John McGeoch on guitar, and Budgie on drums. Fantastic. I, I read somewhere earlier on that Budgie used to be, be was best mates with Holly Johnson. 
Yeah. And I was like, what? That was something I totally didn't equate in my head, but I guess, yeah, yeah, that, 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 make, that makes total sense. Um, so this album for me was when they start going, getting a bit of, I guess, psychedelia in of a sound, you know, rather than just the classic, the sound that they'd been, they'd been building on. It also sounds like they're moving into the eighties um, for me a little bit, um, but no, no, this was an absolute banger. And for me, the one I knew before that came back was Christine, which is, which is an all time, all time great track. Um, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, um, what, what happened? What brought them to, what brought them to the studio? What, what was going on? I think around this time, uh, Stussy and Severin just wanted to let more of their influences um, take hold. And they wanted to expand their songwriting a little bit, which is why they called it Kaleidoscope, because they were letting influences from every side come in and um, expand their... The first two albums are great, but they both have sort of a uniform sound to them. And I think this one, they're really uh, stretching out a little bit more and getting a little more confident going out of that sort of punk lane into the banshees the the more middle period banshees a lot of people are more familiar with and um i don't know on a personal level i don't even know how to describe this album i i think pleasantly disconcerting is maybe how i find it and (laughs) i just think budgie and severin are I, i mean i love the early rawness of the early albums when you're listening to people who don't know really how to play but budgie brings such a tightness to that rhythm section that it helps Severn wake up even more. And then John's playing is just his unhinged, wonderfully unhinged guitar playing is from another dimension. I don't even know what he's doing. And then Susie, instead of her sort of punk rock barking is singing more and sings with this smoldering tension. And she really stretches out on songs like paradise place. And, um, it just really sounds like they were kind of breaking free, but also holding back at the same time to create this tension on this album. Um, do you think, I mean, obviously Budgie becomes a, a, a seminal part of the rest of Susie's career, both in the Banshees and the Creatures. Um, do you think it's one of those situations where someone joins a band and you go, what, why weren't they weren't in the, fir- he wasn't in the first two albums? Because he's so integral to their sound over the years. Mm-hmm. They, he just sort of, it's one of those people that joins and you go, oh, oh, you've always, you've always been here, right? Yeah, and you sort of forget the the, the first two albums because he, he he's 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 so part of it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna Nick. I'm just gonna ask you. What are you gonna ask me? Give me some give me some hot takes. <laughs> hot take. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I was surprised actually when you said the one song you knew from it already was Christine because I thought it would be Happy House, which is the song I think I knew best from this album prior to listening to it, and it's a great tune. I really like it, but it also marks a kind of a start of a change in their sound. It's sort of more melodic, uh, yeah, more textured. It's kind of a, a really lovely song. I actually really dislike Christine. I think it's one of those songs, um, I guess, so there's a lot of, someone mentioned earlier, like don't pay too much, too close attention to the lyrics and occasionally I make the mistake and do. And um, it's like when, when she sort of tries to do anything that's about an issue, it always feels very heavy handed. Um, and it's not actually on the album, is it? Israel. Like, you know, she's trying to make amends for the whole swastika thing by wearing a Star of David on stage. And it just feels like she may be the sort of person who starts digging a hole when you try and criticize her um, for anything. Because, uh, I don't know, so a lot of the lyrics feel very heavy-handed to me. And Christine, for me, is a real case in point. It, it kind of 
This is my song about mental I, I, health. I've never found, I mean, listening through most of the albums, I've never found that they're a band who, who lyrically, anyway, that, that lyrics are necessarily the strong point. Some bands you go, oh my God, that's clever. It's a great line. Oh, well done you. <laughs> and, and, and some bands you just go, oh yeah, there's, there's some words going on. Um, this album seemed to be inc- more influential than I thought, particularly for the early 90s um, indie scene. You've got Tim, Tim Burgess from the Charlatans, Brett from Suede. They've all held this up as being a major uh, influence on, on their work. Um, and also when you look at the, the listicles, you know, albums ranked, Susie albums ranked, this is pretty much standard three or four every time. It doesn't really get, get much further down than that. Um, Vim, Vim, um, were you... Were you allowed to listen to Susie and the Banshees again at this point? I had different, friends. <laughs> I had different friends by this point, and I actually went to see them live at Sheffield Top Rank, I think, in 1980. Wow. Been. Um, and it was a real um, gob fest. I, I kind of stood at the back because it was just an avalanche of boys spitting at them, um, and it was... I mean, one of the weirdest, weirdest things I've ever seen. And they went off and came back on and they appealed to the audience not to spit at them and started again and the spit started again. They went on and off um, quite a few times. Um, And we tried to write about this in our zine, but there's no photos anywhere of punk fans covered in gob because at the end of some of these gigs, you would see, you know, guys, just drenched with it. It was absolutely disgusting. And, you know, the bands didn't like it. It was it was a health hazard. Um, so for me, my interpretation of albums is really, you know, can I dance to it? Can I see the band live? And yes, I saw them live and it was brilliant. Um, and the sort of singles of this, Happy House, Christine, you know, good for a bop. Um, there is this weird thing in music where it's like, we love you, but what we're going to do is we're going to throw a pint of piss at you to show you that we love you, or we're going to spit <laughs> at you, or we're going to hurl, hurl a gallon of beer at you, but it's because we love you. I, 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 still, I still don't get that. Um, okay, I mean, I'm going to move on unless anybody's got anything they really want to say about Kaleidoscope. <laughs> Just, just you know, just go ahead. I, I, I just want to admire Jeffrey's use of the word barking, um, relating to the first two albums, and also um, I do believe Christine. The lyrics were by Steve Severin, not by Susie. So, just coming back with a little bit of that. I just think that Kaleidoscope was their absolute coming of age album, and I think that John McGeoch and Budgie raised the bar so much. Um. But yeah, I think Kaleidoscope, it's, you know, it is a bit psychedelic, but I think sonically it's a kaleidoscope because they're also starting to use synthesizers and, and sound effects and all of that kind of thing. And I would always go with Trophy as my favorite track. Okay. Okay. Um, so if this was the album that was their coming of age, which is probably a good way to actually describe it. Their next album is probably the album where they they make it, where they properly hit in many people's in many people's uh, ears and, and, and opinions. They're the pinnacle, I guess. Um, Jeffrey, how long did they take to get to Juju, which I believe is next? And and 
was there anything that brought this brought back their change or their their maturity of sound or or what again they they keep with their uh pattern of releasing an album every year this is again the next year in 1981 and um it's funny about the Gavin because right before this, uh, on the previous album, Susie was hospitalized after that tour, and she blames the Gavin for her being hospitalized on that tour uh, right after that tour. And she said she would eventually just start jumping into the audience and beating the shit out of people if they tried doing that to her. Um, but for this album, after they came off the tour for Kaleidoscope, it seemed like she and Severn were on a creative high where she said they felt like a solidified, a unified group that could be understood without even saying words to each other. And she and Severin got in office at a publishing, a music publishing house, and would just go in and write like crazy and bring songs to Budgie and Miguel to flesh them out afterwards. And they were just on this huge creative high. And the theme of this album was inspired by an African idol they saw at the Horniman Museum. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and it really was this inspiration to sort of bring in this the the african idea of juju which is associated with luck sort of good luck or bad luck and build a theme around that for an album yeah i, I mean nick touched upon the goth thing earlier on um every time i was reading about this over the last two weeks everybody lots of people argue that this is the first goth album or the first proper big goth album this is i don't know obviously susan susie and the band we go we're not goth we're doing our own thing but really this is this is the start of goth, right? I'd say so. No, <laughs> I, I mean they. The press started calling them goth around them, or we call them goth, and um, G O double F. And uh, Susie and Severin hated this because, as you said, they just didn't like being pigeonholed. And um, I think in later years they grew to dislike it even more because they didn't like other goth bands that came in their wake that they felt were pale, watered down versions of themselves, and so. They grew to resent it even more. And uh, I think it was Miguel who said that they were more Hitchcock than sort of vampires in capes, uh, blood on a daisy instead of sinking fangs into a victim. Um, but I like the head of their fan club who said it's kind of ridiculous not calling them goth when they named the band after a Vincent Price movie. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I understand their argument and I'm even sympathetic to their argument. I have my own issues with genre and I don't like how genre pigeonholes the way people, some people may not even approach a band or listen to a band because they just think, oh, I don't like that genre. And so I do see how people can find that limiting. But as a former card carrying goth, I think they're totally a goth band. Oh, wait, wait. So my question for you is, as a brief side, which kind of goth were you? Because, I mean, Nick alluded to a, type, a certain type of goth before, which would be the one I grew up with, the late 80s, um, possibly got a bit of a black hat. Um, maybe there's some form of talcum powder on your shoulder. I don't quite know where that's coming from. Um, Sisters of Mercy, Mission, etc., etc. And then there's this weird American goth that just seems to be emo. Um, Mine was between the two in the '90s, the the rivet head, the industrial nine inch nails, skinny puppy kind of goth. Okay, okay, yeah, that I, I prefer that one. I prefer that one. Um, Vim, um, this album is held up as the greatest thing that they've done. For me, it's their second greatest album, uh, but the greatest thing that they've done. Um, do you agree with that? I mean, do, is this as impactful as people say? I think if you if you look at it as a rock album, it is an accomplished rock album. Um, if you look at it, at it as a post punk, something that's come out of punk, then then it's a very different thing. Um, 
So I think that they're a very unified band by this stage. I think that, um, you know, all the members are working properly together. Um, singing, I think, is better. Um, so, you know, I'm, ne- I'm, I'm not a great lover of massive rock albums, but I do admire that this is that kind of a work. Um, I don't know that they were particularly well loved by the music press at the time. I've been reading some of the um, interviews because at the time, people like me got all my information from the NME Sounds, Melody Maker. Uh, That was really the only way, or listening to John Peel, um, to find out about bands. And um, on, I can't remember, I'm sorry, the name of the website that's got um, reproductions of all the interviews that they did in 1981 around the time of Juju and the the journalists are very kind of anti Susie and the Banshees mainly because they don't interview well mm-hmm. yeah I've heard there was some argument that they, they, they were called as they were slagged off as being elitist because they didn't like the music press or something mm-hmm. like that I think um who were the do we know who the music press's faves or fave darlings were of of that year because obviously they go through phases. Oh, and one year it's whoever whoever doesn't have a jaunty hat isn't cool. Or one year whoever doesn't have long hair. Who 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 were they fawning over in eighty one? Does anybody know? Had, I could, had, I could had, this, yeah, really. we could Google it. Um, have they got into um? Have we got into the Bunny Men That's and that kind of whole yeah. Liverpool thing? And have we got into Orange Juice and Joseph K and the whole postcard thing around then? And maybe the Au Pairs. They were they were absolute uh, music press darlings, and quite uh, yeah, quite was, rightly, quite rightly. <laughs> yeah, there was def- there was definitely things like obviously Blondie and whatnot. Um, we did a we did a pod with Paul Hanley from um, the Fall, and he was talking about bands he saw at Rafters in Manchester in 1980, etc. And there was a lot of this sort of crossover there. But yeah, I think I mean this was also new romantics were coming through, right? In the yeah, mainstream, new, this was a yeah. new romantic time. Well, also, um, 1981 Madness. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course. A- actually, yeah. So it would have been it would have been Joy Division, The Police, Madness. They would have been the kind of slightly alternative, but still kind of chart worthy, chart bound sounds uh, of the era. <laughs> so they would have been kind of directly up against Juju in that kind of pop mm-hmm. punk chart thing. I think also, also, didn't the music press discover the North? I think where everything had been around <laughs> London. North? Everything had been around London. I think around about 1981, it was back to Liverpool, back to Manchester. And if you were from the North, you were cool. I mean, that's always no, been the case, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you wish. Um, all right. Oh, oh it was also, it was also um, the year of Tainted Love, Just Can't Get Enough, uh, enough and don't you want me so there was definitely a, a sound yeah. coming through um and more electro-y um i, I mentioned this on a lot of the previous a lot of this on the previous albums who cites this as their influence this is the album most of radiohead have cited as as their one and you can sort of see it Juju. if you had to pick which album radiohead would say was the one that influenced from from susan de you go yeah it's juju I mean, yeah, Johnny Marr cites this as a huge influence and you listen to a song like Monitor with that guitar on it and you can definitely hear Johnny Marr being influenced by that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do we think? 
it's probably a good time to talk about Legacy. I mean, well, I want to cover that in the next episode anyway, but if this is an album that is possibly held up as the major one, what was, at the time, the initial legacy of Susie and the Banshees? I mean, we can talk about long-term in, in, in a future episode, but what did they achieve by just existing? You know, people say, oh, well, because of the Sex Pistols, and blah, 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 blah. But what happened because of Susie and the Banshees? I mean, do you think it was one of those, I'm going to be really cliched here, of, of, of a bunch of young teenage girls going, I'm going to be a punk? Um, what, what happened? Um, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask one of the punk girl diarists um, this one. Um, Vim. <laughs> it's a really tricky one. I think more of an attitude thing. I think the way that Susie was, as in very self-contained, very sort of snooty and dismissive, and not having to play the game. Um, I think girls um maybe took something from that so yeah it didn't necessarily make them want to join bands but it 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 did give them a kind of attitude thing i don't know if uh, lena agrees with that of course i agree with you i think also you know looking at where susie had come from you know she she was kind of on the bill grundy show with the sex pistols and and you know she did sort of mouth off on the Bill Grundy show, which was, you know, that was kind of, you know, a bit of a sort of uh, a risk, really, because, you know, if she was going to um, upset, uh, you know, major television shows who were going to say, that girl is never coming on under any circumstances ever again. She was right from the outset. She was, you know, she called Bill Grundy out for being a creepy old man, by the way. So she was completely within her rights. But you know, it would have seen as being kind of speaking out of turn and not being very ladylike and, you know, all this kind of stuff that, you know, our generation were brought up with and were sick to death of and didn't really know how to get out of. All we needed were a few examples of people doing the right thing, of women, girls doing the right thing, just to go, yeah, actually, we can do this. And I think it was that kind of thing. It was very simple, but it really broke things open. So, yeah, I totally agree with them that, you know, she, she gave people, gave women something to look to as like just an attitude. It was an attitude. Yeah, totally. I, I suppose there's always, I mean, and regardless of whether male or female as well, there's always, if, you're, if all you're seeing on TV that year is Kim Wilde, which would be about this, if all you're seeing is kids in America, if all you're seeing is blonde, and then there's somebody who's, oh, you're more like me. Whether or not it's like me stylistically or more like me attitude-wise, having someone you can associate with, and there was what three ta- three channels. There was some John. There was John Peel. There was a music press, but it wasn't like anything like this was on the mainstream at all, right? Right, and and also, um, you know, Susie was looking at kind of slightly dark topics, and you know, teenagers love all that, don't they? They love they love kind of you know, oh, let's talk about you know ghosts and. Uh, you know, all is that she kind responsible of stuff. for Twilight? Yeah. Is she responsible she is. for the <laughs> She is. She's single-handedly responsible for almost everything. But, you know, teen- teenagers love to look on the dark side and it's kind of, oh, it's a bit risky. You know, it's the same kind of audience that probably were listening to sort of soft sell as well. It was kind of red light, danger. You know, it, just, it was just all that kind of stuff. 
hugely relieving to know that you know it, it wasn't um, it wasn't just kind of happy shiny smiley people all over the telly there were there was something a bit darker and and uh, you know Susie's been an intellectual she she wasn't just being silly she wasn't taking her clothes off she wasn't kind of twerking she wasn't doing any of that she was actually an intellectual and she was kind of you know had some had some amazing ideas and they were, you know, often slightly on the darker side. So, yeah, good for her. I was oh, also cool. going oh. to say something. Um, we're, <laughs> Come we're, not the best, <laughs> we're not the best representatives for us uh, for being for grooming and makeup, but um, a lot of my friends really took her visual style, um, which I think was it was mysterious. It wasn't overly sexual but it was artistic and creative and so the things that girls did with their hair and around their eyes you know she was very influential in that but I did a bit of the hair but not the, not dyeing it black well I mean I mean as a purely going to a movie reference when they made the movie Blade Runner there is absolutely no doubt that the character Pris and her eye makeup spray eye makeup was 100% influenced by the Susie look After the release of Juju, Susie and Budgie recorded their first EP for their side project, The Creatures, which I definitely recommend to listeners who have never explored that band. The Banshees also released their Once Upon a Time singles collection, which ended up being one of their biggest selling albums. In late 1981, the band went on an extensive tour of the US and Canada. Susie said, North America was a completely alien world, but I quite liked it because at least I had something to hate again. I could get the conflict back. Just walking down the street, heads would turn. The one thing I really loved about America, though, was the bars. I loved the idea that you could get a cocktail everywhere. Amen to that. The band got some space after the Juju tour and reconvened to tour Scandinavia. They were listening to the Beatles' White Album a lot on the tour bus, and that album reinforced their will to maintain their individuality and not pay attention to what was happening in other pop music. Their next album, A Kiss in the Dreamhouse, would be their fifth record recorded in five years. The theme of the album was inspired by a documentary they saw about Hollywood prostitutes in the 1940s who would get plastic surgery to look like starlets. The same story would later be used to inspire the film LA Confidential. The band pulled back on the aggression and their creepy vibe just a little bit and got more experimental in the studio, evoking a film noir feeling for the album. John was surprised when he got a good review for his jazz piano playing on the album. He said, I was just flapping about. That was almost as funny as the time we got a bad review for a gig that we hadn't actually played. Putting this album in that noir context helped it make a lot more sense to me. The album is more Raymond Chandler than Hitchcock, especially songs like Melt and Cocoon. This is an album that I really didn't take to at first, but it grew on me over time. I sometimes have trouble describing to people why I like the Banshees music. Oftentimes their songs are not about what they seem on the surface. I found a quote from Sue describing the writing of Slow Dive where she said, It was an improvised lyric. If you're making music, what it amounts to is, you're expressing something you can't say in words. So for me to explain what that is, is taking something away that you lose when you're using speech. With music, it should speak for itself. Seven described the recording of the album as creatively very exciting, but also, without us realizing it, very draining. It took its toll on John more than the others, and he began to detach from the band. Things went further south when he showed up to a gig in Spain so drunk that he could barely play his guitar. He was burning out, and when they got back to England, he was committed. With a European tour coming up, Susie and Severin sacked him from the band under advisement of their management. In retrospect, 
They wished they had canceled the tour and given John time to sort things out, but they were on a speeding train and from the inside could not see how to slow it down. Robert Smith was brought back into the fold to fill in on guitar after John's departure. After a difficult period recording The Cure's pornography album, Robert was seeking the anonymity of being in a band where he would not be the focal point. The band finished the tour with Robert and then decided to take a break and work on side projects. Susie and Budgie went off to Hawaii to record their first full-length Creatures album. They finished it in just 10 days, capping off the final recording session by getting into a brawl with a few Navy servicemen outside of Pearl Harbor. The Banshees also released their Nocturne Live album around this time. Meanwhile, Robert and Steven were at home taking large amounts of LSD and started to get to work on their own side project, The Glove. In contrast to the 10 days that the Creatures took to record their album, The Glove took well over a year to finally finish. Coinciding with The Glove sessions, the Banshees got back together and started to write songs for their next album, Hyena. With New Wave waning and big guitar bands on the rise again, ever the antagonist, the Banshees decided to move guitars to the backseat and write songs where keyboards would be the focal point. They had released an album every year since 1979, were touring constantly, and were balancing time with their side projects, or in Robert's case, his main project. There was also a great deal of, quote-unquote, the chemicals being used by the band members at this time. All those things considered, the band felt fairly tapped out at this point. By all accounts, writing songs for this album were like pulling teeth. Painful for the band, perhaps, but for myself as a listener, the album begins with one of my favorite opening tracks by the Banshees. Dazzle, partially inspired by the film Marathon Man, has those wonderful string orchestrations that really do their job at drawing the listener into the world of the album. Honestly, for all the turmoil and struggle that the band described recording the album, I think it holds together rather well. It was a purposeful move into a more pop direction. Pop for the Banshees, that is. Can you really put We Hunger or Bring Me the Head of the Preacher Man next to Kenny Loggins or Van Halen and tell me they're the same thing? Blow the House Down is my favorite album closer by the band. Really, it's a top five track for me in general. At the same time, something does seem a bit off in the mix or production on the album. At times, Budgie's drums are... It's not that he's muted, but it's like on Running Town, he and the band are totally on the same beat, but how he's mixed in the song, it sounds like he's a bit detached. But I suppose that production also adds to the haunting quality of the album. The band's more pop mindset around this time also led to the recording and cover of the Beatles song Dear Prudence, released as a single just before the album came out. They chose that song partially because the band had been listening to the White Album so much while touring Scandinavia, and partially because it was one of the only songs on the White Album that Robert said that he liked. It ended up being the band's highest charting UK hit, reaching number three on the singles chart, so it was included on the American release of Hyena. The recording of Hyena, The Cure's The Top, as well as the Glove album all coinciding with each other, along with those aforementioned chemicals that were in use, led Robert to start to fall apart. A couple of weeks before the Banshees were to go on the road, he came to the band with a doctor's note stating he could not go on tour. Were Susie and Severin sympathetic and understanding? <laughs> no, of course not. Susie complained, that wounded sparrow act doesn't wash with me. We're all burning candles at both ends. And with that, Robert Smith was out of the band. We're like the picture of Dorian Gray, Susie said. We continue unblemished while the guitarists we discard bear all the scars. We talked about how Juju was maybe the first, um, <laughs> maybe goth album, but that they didn't like it because other bands were uh, hollow imitations and went down yeah, different routes. Um, I want to talk about the cover of um, A Kiss in the Dream House. It is the most 
weak ass goth album cover <laughs> I have ever seen in my life. It is a mission, the mission B side cover. The font, the the colours. I look at it and go, yeah, yeah, that's that would be in the goth bargain bin. I mean, I don't know what it sounds like, but that's in the goth bargain bin. Even the very font of it. Um, Jeffrey, I know that you were more of a an, an anarcho punk with with your industrial, but I mean. They are going down at least the goth aesthetic route, right? Well, for Kiss in the Dreamhouse, the the cover was inspired by paintings of Gustav Klimt, and um, goth. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it, it's sort of part two of, or part three of Israel and Drop Dead with the song "Painted Bird," where it's still Susie kind of playing her guilt over wearing the swastikas in early days because the song is based off a book about a young Polish boy who's fleeing the Nazis, and. Uh, Klimt's art was destroyed by the Nazis and also had to flee the Nazis. And so it's sort of carrying on in that theme for the cover of this album. Okay. 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 Um, and musically, I mean, to get to this point, they, and I don't want to dwell too much of it. They went past, they actually went via the creatures, right? I mean, by this point, the creatures has become a thing. Yeah. That started with, um, just Susie and Buddy playing well, uh, John and Steven would take a break from the band and, uh, Susie and, Buddy would play a couple songs together. And when John and Severin came back, they said it sounded good, no need to add other instruments to it. And so they would sometimes play the duet live. So Severin and Mikiak go take a bourbon break, they called it. And it just sort of expanded where Susie and Buddy wanted to try this project. And they released the first EP where it's just Susie and Buddy. And I really, I love those Creatures albums. It's really just something I, I i guess if it's just drum and voice it feels reductive to call it primal but there is something kind of primal about those albums that i really the first two albums creature albums i really love um, do you think artistically there's there's a, a thing of when two members of a band be it who, who whichever two members of the band go we love you guys we love this band but we're gonna go and do a separate thing over here and then come back it's okay. I mean, we would have you, obviously, but you know, it's better if it's just the two of us. Do you think there is ever this that ever causes a schism? I think in some cases that might, but in in the case of this, I, I they're very. It's difficult. You mentioned how they're difficult interviews, even in their official biography. They're very cagey about their personal relationships, and they're very frank and open about some things and then they're very quiet about other things and one of those is their relationship with each other especially between Susie and Severin and so it, it can be difficult to sometimes piece that apart but after Kiss and Dreamhouse when they go make the first full Creatures album then that's when Severin and Robert go off and make the Glove album so they seem to be okay with the side project idea okay okay um, and as an album coming back coming back uh, coming back to a Kiss in the Dreamhouse I mean I, I to be honest, I'm just going to hold my hands up and go that after after Kaleidoscope and Juju, I had a bit of a lull with this one. Um, it's all right. It's one of those that I went. It's all right. I mean, is it anybody's favorite? Is it, I mean, is anybody here going to hold fight for it being an amazing thing? I mean, how is it critically? This one received. Does anyone know? This one was really a sleeper for me. It was one for years that I would listen to, and it would just not take. And when I read, when I was, honestly, when I was doing research for the immersion and I read that they based it on an article Susie read where Hollywood prostitutes in the 1940s would get plastic surgery to look like starlets. And 
that sort of inspired the album. It's the same story that inspired the movie LA Confidential. And putting it in that noir context, thinking of this album sort of more Raymond Chandler than Hitchcock, changed the way I listened to it. And the album really opened up for me after that. And so just in the last few months, I really got turned on to this album more than I had in the past. Okay, okay. And, and sonically, I'm going to ask either either Lena or Vim, sonically, I mean, do you think any, do you think this album is a big change? Is it one that thing of carrying on with what they've got to? Is it a kaleidoscope? I don't think it's a kaleidoscope at all. I think that um, Kiss in the Dreamhouse is, is, is they've got to the point where they're, they, they know how to record. Like they know a lot about recording to the point that they're actually using the recording studio as another instrument because they also produced this LP as well. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting about, you know, where, where the title comes from and, you know, the film stars getting all the plastic surgery so they get more clients and everything. I mean, <clears throat> it's like uh, th- there's that whole kind of past that they've got of the kind of, you know, the Roxy music and going to Louise's, that there's a, a gay nightclub they used to go to in London before they started the Banshees and there's all that kind of stuff. And there's, the, you know, tracks like Obsession. It's practically musical theatre. For goths. <laughs> so yeah, I think recording wise, yeah, they're on the top of their game. But I would, would, I think I'd have to quietly agree with you that it's not my favourite one. <laughs> I, th- I think it, it's sorry, it's it smacks of one of those ones where, yeah, we've got to make an album. We'll go in, we'll do it. I think the relationships within the band weren't ideal. Um, some of what I've read is about you know there's a lot of LSD around. Um, the producer was wanting to do all these new techniques like freezing microphones in buckets of water and you know lots of things that you do when you actually don't have many ideas and it's just kind of gimmicky things and using the latest techniques um, to just try and make something work but maybe the, the spirit of it had been lost. Yeah, I mean there, there does seem to be a thing sometimes when bands become really good and i'm doing air quotes like they become proficient sorry maybe proficient is the word and some bands need to force themselves to change uh they'll go right now we're totally becoming a totally different band uh, uh, i don't know primal scream were a very good example of it they go right well we're good at this now let's go and do something else you know, the bowie was an excellent example he goes well i've done three albums of this if i don't change my style dramatically maybe i will get stayed i guess um, I mean, it was fine. Like I said, it was fine. Nick? On this? Not especially, no. But I was, I was sort of intrigued when you declared Juju was your second favourite album, but haven't actually declared your favourite yet. I thought, it's not going to be a kiss in the dream house, is it? But obviously not. <laughs> oh. no. I, don't, I, you know, I didn't hate it. it, just, it just, there is I another episode, Nick. There is another episode. Wait, there are good albums in the second episode? That's exciting. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, but obviously anybody listening to this is going, well, there's only one really good album in the second episode. And so obviously there's not much of a, a cliffhanger. So what my favorite will be anyway, we are going to move on to the final one of the six for today. And there's, there's also a nice bit of symmetry. We, we started with an album where there was a Beatles cover and we're moving through a year where dear prudence. I mean, for many people, memories of Susie and the Banshees are memories of, Susie singing Dear Prudence. Um, and then we're moving into Hyena mm-hmm. as well. Is this the right year? Uh, Jeffrey? 
Um, well, are they still doing one a year, like bands should do? Uh, this is <laughs> this is their biggest break. And um, after a kiss in the dream house, Susie and Budgie went off to Hawaii and recorded the first full Creatures album in ten days. And at the same time, uh, right before the album was released, they fired John McGuck from the band. Uh, they had been on tour, and his alcoholism had become a really severe problem. And after they got off the tour, McGuck had been committed, and they pretty much kicked him out of the band at that point. And Susie and Severed have said, in retrospect, they really regretted that, and they wish they had let him just work things out. But they said, "Just I've heard this story many times from bands where they're on a moving train, and they don't realize it from the inside how fast they're moving, and they just don't stop to think about what they're doing. And so this time, Robert Smith comes back into the fold, and... Narrative, Clarkson. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did not see that. I did not see that coming. <laughs> and so Robert Smith comes back. It was just after all the trouble he had with the pornography album. And he said he just wanted to be in a band where he could be somewhat anonymous in the background. And while Susie and Budgie are off recording the Creatures albums, he and Steven begin their side project, The Glove. And it took Susie and Budgie 10 days to record The Creatures. And he and Severn about a year to record The Glove because they were doing so many psychedelics and drugs and every chemical they could get their hands on basically at that point. And at the same time, Budgie and Susie come back and they begin recording Hyena. Okay. Um, is the band, are the Banshees the only band where Robert Smith thinks he can sink into the background? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, so this, by now they're big. Like you said, they're 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 just barreling on at the band. They're a proper band. There, there's no pretense. There's no, um, we don't know what we're doing. There's we are now a big band, and maybe there's extra pressure. Do we think um, extra pressure um, with every new release? Because they're, now they're on a pedestal, and they could fall off. They've had band members come. They've had band mem- band members go. Um, was wait was. Was Dear Prudence on this one, though? Are we going crazy? It was a single before it yes. was released, but then on the American release, it was included on the album. And I think later UK releases, it was included as well. And this was also uh, Swimming Horses, right? With the This was also the Swimming Horses album. Yeah. Which I watched a video the other day. And I was like, my God, that is the most 80s goth pop video <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. Um, and we're, what, we're talking 1984. Eight four. Okay, thank you. Um, all right. I mean, I'm at the moment. I think it's a great album, but it's not an album I think I'd choose to put on because there's about three or four Susie and the Banshees albums. After I've listened to all of them, I go, yeah, that one, that one, that one. It's fine. I'm, I'm just, I'm going to sit back and hope that other people have opinions because for me, it was like it's all right. I quite like Dear Prudence. I like Swimming Horses. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Lena? Yeah, Swimming Horses. I mean, take take uh, take your eyes off the video for a moment. Listen to Swimming Horses. It's Kate Bush. It is Kate Bush, isn't it? It's Kate Bush. Yeah. <laughs> it's Kate Bush. I mean, what, you know, amazing. Um, what the Banshees were up against, I mean, I think this got to number 15 in the UK charts as an album. And it's it's amazing to see... All the different albums and the kind of as the pop the pop culture was changing. So what they were up against in 1984 was Frankie goes to Hollywood and Wham, <laughs> um, which you know and Band Aid, right? I mean, this is Live Aid year yeah, as well, yeah, right? Yeah, it was Band Aid. Do they know it's Christmas year? Which of course the Banshees weren't part of. 
they weren't going to play along. They weren't getting in with that. So they get another gold star uh, for, 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 for just staying with their own course. But, yeah, Hyena, I don't know. It's, it's an odd album. They had the London Symphony Orchestra play on it as well, which doesn't seem very punk rock to uh, me. I always... I always worry. I always worry at that point. Yeah. There's two that's... points in the band's career that I worry about. Getting a symphony orchestra mm. in and the album where they just start singing about being in a band because they've got nothing else to sing about anymore. Those are the two bits I start to stress <laughs> about. Now, when they combines and they're singing about being in a band with a symphony behind them, unless maybe they're elbow, because I think elbow can stand in front of an orchestra and just sound like elbow. Yeah, you're, I think you're right. It's not very punk, is it? And also the six-minute tracks, five, tracks that are five or six minutes long, that's not at all punk. That's why I don't like they it. Don't get any <laughs> punk Regular rock listeners points. will know I don't like a long song. They get a Kate Bush point, <laughs> but no punk rock points on Hyena. <laughs> and I think Weirdly, while we've been doing, while we've been having this conversation, sorry, Jeffrey, I'll come to you in, 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 in a second. I forgot about Kate Bush. I was trying to think what female artists were were looming large in the charts that were not maybe you know um, Yoshina Easton's etc. And I totally forgot about Kate Bush, and she must have been was, was this Wuthering Heights era or no, surely Wuthering Heights is much earlier than this. Hounds of Love, right? Hounds of Love, maybe Hounds, maybe Hounds of Love might have been that. Wuthering Heights was later. Wuthering Heights earlier. Wuthering Heights seventy eight. Uh-huh. And then Hounds of Love was mid eighties, possibly yeah. eighty five, eighty six. Cloud busting, but but anyway, I, yeah, I didn't realize, I, I didn't see the comparison. It's hard, yeah. I don't want to just compare them because they're, they're female, but you know, there is definitely a vocal comparison and this sort of free spirit craziness. Um, Jeffrey, you were about to say something, and I, I just carried on. Oh, no worries. Uh, you were talking about their struggle at this point, and I think they really have a little bit of a twofold struggle where. They are thinking of being more pop-oriented and pop-minded, but their other struggle is they also want to stay different and be the artistic band that they see themselves ad, as and sort of this strange art rock that they're doing. And I think they, they do find the balance where this is, I think, their most pop album to this point. But then you look in the American pop chart at this time for Kenny Loggins' Footloose and Van Halen's Jump. And so this is... I mean, put this next to those, and it sounds like the craziest thing someone may have ever heard in the American suburbs, at least. And um, part of the less punk sound might be because a one of the producers came to them, and or not producer, someone from the record company said, you two in big country are really big right now, so we want you to have a big guitar sound. And so they decided they want to, wanted to almost remove the guitar from this album, which is why it's very piano heavy on the album. So it's the anti-U2 album? Basically, yes. <laughs> Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. Why does it sound like this? Because it's not you two or Big Country. Big Country is not even a band I, I, who existed in my memory. They'd been ditched a long time. I, I half expected you to say then Jericho. I mean, that's another one of that ilk. Um, we are going to start moving towards wrapping up territory unless people have anything specific they want to say in this part. Well, I think uh, for, for the songs, I will say the album as a whole doesn't, I think the production on it is very, some of the songs just sound like the band's not quite all there or, or they sound very filtered or like you can't quite hear the band, especially on uh pointing bones. You can really literally, it sounds like the volume is turned down on the entire band, but this song does have one of my favorite songs by the band, which is blow this house, blow the house down. I think that is 
one of the greatest album closers, like not just top five songs by the band, top five songs by almost any band for me. So it still has some good shining spots on this album. All right, good, good, good. Well, we have we have gone through um, the first six or the first half, in fact, um, uh, of the Susie Nabenshi's uh, discography. There have been some highlights. Most people seem to agree Juju is is the highlight, um, but there are some there is some magic to come in the, the second half. Um, remember, um, if you haven't listened to this on Mixcloud, you haven't been listening to any music, so mm-hmm. go to Mixcloud. And also, if you go to Mixcloud for two ninety nine a month, which is the minimum we could make it, sixty um, percent of that goes to the artists that get covered and get played by us anyway. So we get less than that. So you know, it's the only way you can really support us. There is a patron, but it's not really. We don't really look at it. So if you're putting money into it, we probably don't know. Um, it's been fantastic, um, Jeffrey. Thank you very much for coming back with your reams of research. Great, thanks for having me, um, Lena. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure. Thanks for having me along. And and Vim, thank you very much as well. Thank you. It's been great. And remember, if you're listening to this, punkgirldiaries.com, um, actual physical zine stuff, which is, like I said, pretty cool. Um, Nick. Cheers. Later. Thank you for listening to our latest show. If you enjoyed it, please tell somebody. We rely enormously on word of mouth to reach new listeners. And if you don't subscribe already, you're missing out on the version of the show with actual music in it. And that'll never do. Head over to Mixcloud to subscribe. Doing so not only supports the show, but also the featured artists. Thanks to Mixcloud's generous divvying up of the cash. And thank you to everyone who appeared on today's show. Firstly, to Jeffrey McDonald for your heartfelt album introductions and to the Punk Girl Diaries, who are Lena Cortina and Vim Reno. You can find out more about them at punkgirldiaries.com, where you can also get your hands on their fabulous zine. Thanks to my effusive co-host Yuen for keeping us all in order, editing the show together and all the other things you do to keep the podcast running. And as always, to Jonathan Fisher for creating our theme tune. Don't forget to come back for part two when we'll be joined by all the same people to talk about the remaining records in Susie and the Banshees' oeuvre. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and I'm sorry that I hit you, but my string snapped. <laughs>